we've come as far as James 5, and we're going to finish out James today. Came through chapter 4 last week, and we saw the characteristics brought by wisdom from above and the characteristics brought by wisdom from below. Wisdom from below brings bitter envy and self-seeking. Wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy, and full of good fruits. We looked at our three adversaries, that is the flesh, the world, and the enemy, and how a wrong relationship with any one of these produces a wrong relationship with God. Now, this week in James 5, we're going to wrap it up, and it seems to be a bit of a mixed bag of different commands, different exhortations from James. But with a bit of closer reading, it seems that this whole chapter is centered around verse 7. And this is the anticipation that comes with waiting for the return of Christ. He says, therefore, to start verse 7, that therefore seems to point back to the previous idea um, in that fall, the paragraph before. The ideas in verse 7 seem to flow out of a patient expectation of the Lord's coming. And we'll look at this in a little more detail. There are a few ways that are outlined in this chapter that the honest expectation of Christ's return will affect how a mature Christian will live. And we've been seeing these aspects of maturity as we come through James. First, they are patient when wronged. A mature Christian waiting for Christ is patient when they're wronged. They are pure in speech. They are prayerful in trials, and they are persistent in soul winning. Verse 1, come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Right away, James is back on the rich. Um, He really does not take it easy on these guys, and we'll see why. He says, your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you have kept back by fraud, cry out. And the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in the day of slaughter. You have condemned. You have murdered the just. He does not resist you. So, Right away in uh, verse 1 through 2, we see James relaying what he heard from Jesus. In Matthew 6, 19, Jesus is recorded as saying, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. What good are these earthly things, these earthly treasures to us anyway, when they're taken away. And one day they will be taken away. Uh, we are not to put our trust in these material things. In James's time, and still today, the world's elites are heaping up treasures for themselves. 
they are living comfortably. They're feeling secure in their wealth, but there will come a time when all of that that they've stored up amount to nothing. You've probably heard that money talks, and indeed it does. In verse 4, he says, Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out. The wages that were kept back cry out to God. The reapers who were wronged cry out to God, and he hears them. All through scripture, we see God being uh, merciful. He blesses the poor, the downtrodden, and it's no different here. We see James refer to God as the Lord of Sabaoth. This is a term that's of Hebrew origin, meaning Lord of armies or Lord of hosts. It's a military epithet of God. And it's fitting for James to refer to God in this way because in other scriptures, God fights for the poor. Psalm 146.7 says that God executes justice for the oppressed. Psalm 35.10 says that God delivers the poor from those who oppress him and from those who rob him. God fights for the poor, for the oppressed. Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, talking to the the rich guys, cry out, and the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in a day of slaughter. Now, God wants us to enjoy the little things. He wants us to enjoy the things that he has blessed us with. And especially in this country, he has blessed us with so much. And there's so much to be thankful for, to enjoy. But these guys that he's talking to are going overboard with that. They are heaping up so much for themselves. They are living in so much excess that it actually detracts from the living conditions of others. This amount of excess is sinful, and there's no question about that. The main idea in these people's lives was pleasure, was luxury. They were living for these things. You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in the day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the just, he does not resist you. There are a few layers to this verse, verse 6, that we can peel back. Foremost in James' mind, I believe, was his half-brother, Jesus. Jesus, who was just, he was righteous, was led to the slaughter without resistance. We know that the scripture tells us he was led as a lamb to the slaughter. He didn't protest. He did not resist them who crucified him. In a more general sense, James is lumping these rich oppressors into a category and saying that they, as a whole, condemn and murder righteous people, which no doubt was happening and is happening. This was true then as it is true today. 
James himself was actually called James the Just. Now, interesting that the Holy Spirit may have been predicting James's death, his martyrdom, in this little sentence. You have condemned, you have murdered the just. He does not resist you. Could this be a way of the Holy Spirit foretelling James's death? He did end up being murdered, and he did not fight back. Uh, he actually went willingly to his death. Verse 7 reads, Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. So like I said at the very beginning, um, it seems that this whole chapter is centered around this verse. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The whole idea of these strange exhortations that seem to be random, they all connect with the coming of the Lord. They all relate back to this idea. Therefore, be patient. Therefore, so in light of what James just wrote about the rich oppressing the poor, be patient. He knows that some of us are the poor. He knows that we have been wronged. He's saying, hang on just a second, because righteousness, justice is coming for the poor. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. He's acknowledged that the rich are mistreating the poor, and though we may be afflicted for a little while, as Christians, we know that our best days are yet to come. Our best days still lie ahead. He says, be patient. This can be more accurately translated as patiently endure. And this is an imperative. This is a command verb. He's saying, patiently endure. We don't have a choice in this. Uh, it's not like we can just say, hey, okay, get us out of here right now. We don't have that choice. And this is the only way that we can proceed, patiently endure. We're being called to bear up under these afflictions. This word is not passive. This is an active form of the word. It's not a passive waiting, looking up in the sky, waiting for Jesus to come back and twiddling our thumbs. This is not at all what we're called to do. We shouldn't spend our days stupidly staring at the sky, just waiting for something incredible to happen. This is an active perseverance. And it means to bear up under wrongs, under persecution. Persevere. Then James uses several examples to illustrate this patience he's calling us to. First, we see the farmer, then the judge, who is Jesus, and then the prophets. The farmer is talked about in this verse 7. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, 
waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. Farmers are surely some of the most patient people on this earth. If you know a farmer, or if you are a farmer yourself, you know that their lives are not counted, they're not numbered in days, but in seasons and years. You have to wait entire seasons for anything to pop out of the ground. There is a patience that comes with farming. Now, I'm sure that uh, many of you know that I got my bachelor's degree in animal science at Tarleton, Um, and that was a great experience, and I learned a lot. But when I was reading this verse 8, you also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. That word establish jumped out at me. And so I got to thinking about it a little more and seeing how that could relate uh, back to our lives as Christians. Well, as an animal science major, when I say a plant is established, it means that it's thriving in its habitat. Uh, Basically, you can turn some cattle out on it, they can graze it, and it can grow back. It's well established. Well, for a certain time, when you're gardening, when you're planting something, you'll often have to apply more care to that plant for a little while, while it becomes established. You can't just throw something in the ground and expect it to flourish, but it needs a little bit of extra care on the front end. The plant requires time and care as its roots grow deeper into the soil. When it's just been planted, that network of roots hasn't had a chance to expand out. It doesn't have the ability to gather all of the nutrients it needs in in a timely manner to sustain it. It needs care. They set it in place, these gardeners, and then they provide the nutrients that the plant needs for growth. And as I thought more about this word establish, um, I realized that it's very easy to apply this concept to our spiritual growth. When we first become Christians, man, we are not very rooted, are we? We need somebody to come alongside us and urge us along, to nudge us in the right direction, to care for us. It takes some support from faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. And Paul said that he planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. In this, Paul is confirming that newer Christians need to be watered. He said that Apollos watered. So evidently, Paul was sowing the seeds. He was planting those seeds in the hearts of these people. Apollos came over later and took care of them. He taught them. He watered these seeds. But as we root ourselves in God's word, as we begin to mature as Christians, we become more self-sustaining. And as we reach maturity, we'll see a shift in our watering habits. 
we tend to shift from being watered to watering others. And this is actually a good gauge of spiritual maturity. We still have to get nutrients, but by this point, we've rooted ourselves well in the Word of God, and we're more self-sustaining. Most of your spiritual food throughout the week should not come on Sunday mornings, but the majority of that meat should come from your personal study time, your personal devotions. How much of your spiritual food comes from your personal time with the Lord and how much of it is fed to you? In other words, are you a producer or a consumer? You know, we've been talking about maturity the whole way through James. This is a great gauge of that maturity. Don't get me wrong. There is nothing wrong with being a consumer. But at the same time, we have to press on to maturity. We can't be stuck somewhere. You know, nobody bats an eye at a mother feeding her little infant from a bottle. But if my mom walked in right now and started feeding me from a bottle, there's something wrong with that. You know, it doesn't take a genius to figure that out. We can't be spiritual babies in a man's body. It doesn't work well. No one expects to see that mother feeding me a bottle um, because I should have matured past that. And it's the same idea here. We establish our hearts. We root ourselves in the Lord, in his word. And by that, we get our nutrients. There is no spiritual growth apart from the word of God. That is how spiritual growth happens. So we've talked about the word establish, but what exactly are we establishing? James commands us to establish our hearts. Establish our hearts in what? A plant is established in soil as our hearts are established in Jesus Christ. And by extension, we establish ourselves in his word. For the coming of the Lord is at hand. And this is the why to establish your hearts. The coming of the Lord is at hand. There should be an earnest expectation in each one of us as we look forward to the returning of Jesus Christ. Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Number two, the judge, and this is Jesus. When Jesus finally takes back the reins, he will set all records straight in executing judgment on the world. And it is not our job as Christians to exact vengeance for him. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord, not Christians. One way or another, everyone will end up face-to-face with Jesus for judgment. Um, That is when all of the records will be set straight. Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. 
Behold, the judge is standing at the door. He's saying, just hang on a little while. It won't be long until those who have wronged you will be repaid for that. It won't be long until justice is served. But for you, be patient. Be patient and expect his coming. My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. The prophets patiently bore up. They were patient, but it was an active patience. They bore up under much suffering, persecution. They were ridiculed for what they did, for what they believed, and what they said. All through the Old Testament, you have examples. Um, Take Jeremiah, ridiculed for what he believed in. Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. James is writing much to the same tune as Peter here. Peter in 1 Peter 3, 14 and 15 writes, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. James, writing, telling us to take the example of the prophets as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord. Job is the classic example of perseverance, of suffering and blessing. And we see throughout the book of Job, God has pure intentions for him. God wanted to bless Job even more than he already had. Job had no idea what God was doing. All the way through the book until the very last chapter around there, Job was kept in the dark. Job had no idea the intentions of God. And his friends certainly didn't help. We'll talk about his friends again here in a second, but they spoke without knowledge, as did Job. God asked Job, what do you actually know about anything? What do you know about creation? Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? To what were its foundations fastened? And Job ultimately comes to the conclusion that he really doesn't know anything. And I've come to that conclusion myself. There is really nothing that I know. I think I said it last week or the week before, but we know far closer to nothing than we do to everything by a wide, wide margin. 
Job came to the conclusion that he didn't know anything. And in the end, Job actually admits, he says, I know that you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you, talking to God. You asked, who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I've uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. So as we are waiting for the Lord's coming, we are to be patient when wronged. As we wait for the Lord's coming, we are to be patient when we're wronged. But above all, my brethren, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, lest you fall into judgment. Verse 11 brings us to the second way this expectation of Christ's return should affect our lives. We should be pure in speech. And James isn't actually outlawing legal oaths. The writer of Hebrews tells us that even Jesus took the position of priest with an oath. And inasmuch as he was not made priest without an oath, for they have become priests without an oath, but he with an oath, By him who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. By so much more, Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. Rather, James is telling us to have such honest speech, to be so pure in word, that we don't need to back up our promises with an oath. A Christian should keep their word. And we especially should not be throwing God's name out flippantly um, as something to swear by. In no way is that okay. Above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no lest you fall into judgment. The idea is that we should be continually so honest, so straightforward and trustworthy that we don't need to back up our yes with any oath. If I say, yes, I'll take care of that for you. You should have faith that I am going to actually take care of that for you. I shouldn't have to swear on anything, give you an oath that I'm going to do it. Let your yes be yes and your no, no. Verse 13, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. I'll remind you that this is old camel knees writing. He has a lot to say about prayer. And this last section is going to be mostly dealing with prayer. He's going to tell us to be prayerful in the midst of trials. Verse 13, is anyone among you suffering? That word suffering carries the idea of afflicted. Um, It's not specifically a sickness. He uses a different word for sick in the next few verses. Um, But it is saying, are you under pressure? Are you afflicted? Are you wronged? Sure, this could be sickness. This Sickness could be afflicting you, 
but James is going to use a different word that's more specific in the next couple of verses. So this is a little bit broader term here. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. That's all he, he gives you. Let him pray. No doubt that was James's answer to a lot of things. Just pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Is anyone among you sick? And there is this more specific word, sick. And even more specific, it means laid up. It's a sickness more than just sniffles, but it's causing you a great deal of challenge and a great deal of pain. Is anyone among you sick? If anyone is sick, call the leaders of the church and ask for prayer. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. So this verse 14 puts the ownness on the sick person and those close to them. It's not the church leader's job to seek out people who are sick to pray for. Um, It is on the family, it is on the sick to contact the elders for prayer. Um, And that is just... um, Logistical. You know, if I'm spending every day of my life searching out someone who's sick, I'm not going to be able to study like I need to. I'm not going to be able to take care of my family, probably. So if there are sick among you, let them contact the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Also note that James does not recommend that they call the televangelist hotline for healing. It is someone local to them. They probably know the elder that they're calling for prayer. Um, It's personal. We don't want to call the sideshow, the miracle show on television. That's that's not what you want. Uh, Someone that cares for you. It says, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, this anointing with oil isn't just a church ritual. Oil was a common medicine in these days, uh, similar to our essential oils today. Physicians often anointed the sick with oil. And Dr. Luke records Jesus' words as he tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. And he also pays attention to these little medical details that some other people may not have even written down. He says, and this is Jesus speaking, and when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn and took care of him. That's from Luke 10, 34. So, When this good Samaritan found 
the guy that was beaten up, he took care of him. What did he do to try to help him heal his wounds? He poured oil and wine. The oil was actually for medicinal purposes. And so the picture here is of saints not only praying for one another, but also using the means that God has supplied for their healing, for their health. It's not just prayer, it's prayer and anointing with oil. And no doubt there is a faith aspect to that as well. Don't keep yourself from getting treatment for an illness. God has actually given us certain ways that we can treat illnesses, and we should use those to the best of our abilities and knowledge. Now, there's a lot of stir in the church over anointing with oil, but it's really not about the oil at all, um, especially today. Um, And it's not about the elder that you choose to pray for you. In the next verse, it says that the Lord will raise him up. It comes down to the Lord and his will for that person. Verse 15 reads, And the prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. The prayer of faith. Prayer is, by definition, supernatural. We don't have a file for it. There's nothing like it in our natural world. We have to step out of the boat in faith when we pray. Faith is the only means by which we can pray. If you don't have faith that God exists, or you don't have faith that God wants a personal relationship with you, why would you pray in the first place? And the answer is you wouldn't. There would be no reason to if you didn't believe there was a God who wanted to hear from you. Faith, the prayer of faith. And the prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. Um, This is not talking about salvation, but a physical restoration of the person. But, and here's the, the big but, it doesn't specify when they will be healed. It says that the Lord will raise him up. Will save is just sometime in the future. Um, It says, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. The if here dissociates the sickness from the sin. Okay, and this is very important. Some people think that all sickness is a result of a person's sin. This is not the case. If this was the case, then we would literally all be terribly sick. Um, Sickness is not a direct result of personal sin. If someone is very sick, they will say, they must have sinned greatly or they're lacking faith. This was the fallacy that Job's friends fell into. They they came to Job to comfort him, but they ended up accusing him of sinning 
and hiding his sin. They thought that that sin was why he was being stricken, why all of these sicknesses were coming upon him, why his kids were taken away from him, why his house, everything that he had, besides his wife who stood beside him and told him to curse God and die. All of that was not a result of Job's sin. And we get an inside look at the beginning of the book of Job. We see Satan coming into heaven, talking to God, saying, man, if you would just stop blessing that guy so much, you would let me touch him. He wouldn't bless you like he does right now. He would curse you to your face. God says, okay, I permit you. And he permits Satan to do everything that he does. I permit you to afflict him. Um, And we see what happens from that. And then we see Job's realization in the end. Man, I know nothing. God, your ways are beyond my finding out. There's another extreme to this as well. Some teach that a specific prayer of faith will heal automatically every time. A specific prayer. That's baloney. Paul writes that he left Trophimus sick at Miletus. Why would Paul not just pray the prayer of healing over Trophimus and have him healed right there? Did he not know this fancy prayer? No, not at all. There is no one prayer that can guarantee healing. Now, in a way, sickness does result from sin. However, not personal sin. Sickness came into the world when Adam and Eve fell in the garden. Um, And in this way, sickness is a result of that sin. No other sin. That is the only sin which brought sickness and death into the world. Jesus went to the pool of Bethesda and he healed one man out of a multitude. Why did Jesus not heal everyone there at the pool? I have no idea. I do not know. His ways are beyond our finding out. I don't know why God chooses to heal some and chooses not to heal others. But I do trust that he is good and his ways are so much better than my ways. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. If any of you have wronged another, confess that and forgive. The idea here is not that we all have to confess all of our sins to each other. That would be awkward, and quite honestly, I just don't care that much. Um, You take your baggage to God, and y'all deal with that. Um, You can leave me out of the middle of it. 
But if your sin has involved someone else here, someone else in the church, James is saying you need to confront that person. You need to confess your sins to one another. Bring it to their attention and just set the record straight. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Now, a righteous man isn't some kind of super saint that floats wherever he goes, doesn't even need to take a step. That is not a righteous man. A righteous man is someone who, when God sees him, he sees his son. A righteous man is covered by the blood of Christ. It's the only requirement for righteousness. You are covered by the blood. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. When I was a little guy, um, my mom and dad would always read a chapter of the Bible a night with us. And I don't think Cheney was even born yet. It was a long time ago. Um, but we would each have a turn to pray before we went to bed. My prayer went about like this. Dear God, thank you for the lights. Thank you for the windows. Thank you for the chairs. And I would just list things that I was seeing in the room. And there wasn't a lot of thought that went into it. It wasn't fervent. I can tell you that. But as I grew, as I grew in the knowledge and the grace of Jesus Christ, there was something that changed. That prayer came more from the heart, less from the eyes. There was something that changed in my heart. I began to be more fervent, more intentional with my prayers. And that's the idea here. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. We tend to think of Elijah as one of these super saints, one of these bigwigs of the faith. But he was a human just like you and I. In fact, in 1 Kings 19.10, Elijah is recorded crying to God because he thinks he's the last prophet of the Lord. Everybody's against him. He's the last one. Oh, woe is me. Nothing in his nature separates him from us. But he became a great man of prayer through discipline and faith. Two things that we can do today. We can discipline ourselves and we can grow in faith. It says that um, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He had his faults. He had his high points too, but he definitely 
had his faults, just like any of us does. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. Interesting time frame. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. If we as Christians look for the coming of Christ, we will be persistent in soul winning. It should be a top priority, and especially as we draw near the coming of the Lord. The simple meaning of these two verses is that Christians should seek to bring their wandering brethren back to the Lord. And it specifically is talking about Christians who wander, but we can expand this and we can actually apply it to the lost as well. We can so easily get caught up in our own trials, things that are afflicting us, that we forget the needs of the lost and of the backslidden Christians. It's so easy. We are so, so self-centered. We love ourselves. You know, I actually think it's kind of funny when people say that they hate themselves, because if you actually hated yourself, you would be glad that you were so miserable. It doesn't make a lot of sense. We are so self-absorbed. Everything is about us. We get so caught up in our own stuff that we can't see others. We forget the needs of others. Disobedient Christians are in danger of serious discipline from God. He wants to lead us, and he wants to do so gently. And the Holy Spirit is so gentle. The Holy Spirit will guide you gently. But if you don't heed that guidance, God loves you enough that he will discipline you in other ways. It's like a a bit in a horse's mouth. It's uncomfortable, but it gets him to do what you need him to do. It's a way of guiding. Galatians 6.1, written by Paul, says, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourselves, lest you also be tempted in a spirit of gentleness. When we do, we are rescuing them from the discipline of God, and in love, we see their sins covered. As we see the return of Christ approaching and how it is approaching, every day it seems there's something else that makes me think, oh my goodness, and we must be getting close. Um, truly, the day of the Lord is approaching. And as it does, how much more should we dedicate ourselves to witnessing, to reaching others for Christ? The Christian who really believes in the return of Christ cannot help but want to win others. 
You know, when I was coming towards the end of my college career, uh, there was something that I can't really explain inside me, but it was a burning. It was something that just made me want to talk about Jesus, to teach others, just do something. I had to do something and I couldn't shake it. If I have been given this gift that is so wonderful, so far above anything that I could ever ask for, how could I not share that with someone else? You know, how could I keep that to myself? As we see Christ approaching, we must dedicate ourselves to witnessing. So when Christians honestly look for the return of Christ, the evidences of this hope will show up in their lives. They're patient when wronged. They're pure in speech. They're prayerful in trials. And they are persistent in soul winning. Now, this wraps up the book of James. And James was tough on us. You know, he did not pull any punches. All the way through, he has just been crushing us. Um, the speech wrangled the tongue. You know, no man has tamed the tongue. The pride, rich and poor. Be doers. Don't stop at hearing the word. All of these exhortations, all these commands from James, 54 imperatives, command verbs, in 108 verses. One command for every two verses. And that's a lot to take in. But all James is doing is passing on the wisdom he's gleaned from his older brother. And what wisdom it is. He even tells us how to discern where this wisdom comes from. So as we go into this week, I'd encourage you just to read through the book of James again, because truly it is a lot to take in. Um, And every time I read through it, I glean something else from it. Um, It hits me in a different way. It brings up some things in myself that need to change. So I encourage you to read back through it. It won't take very long just to, to read it. But let's be doers and not hearers only. And let's conclude this study and conclude the book of James with a word of prayer, and then we'll be dismissed.